Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reef podcast. Now, a bit of a disclaimer before I introduce my guest today. Uh, this is going to be a pretty heavy topic. So for anyone who might, f- there, there might be things in this that you might find upsetting because we're going to talk a lot about death and um, end of life and stuff like that. So if, I mean, obviously we all deal with death. It's, it's part of life. But if um, this is if if you find that maybe this topic isn't for you or you feel uncomfortable about it or whatever maybe give this one a skip um and if you are kind of prepared for it and you're, you're happy with it then just exercise with caution so here's here's a little warning before we get into things um so yeah today's guest is an end of life doula i think i said that right and yep. a grief coach hey, from columbus yeah. <laughs> ohio her name is nikki smith welcome to the show how you doing Hi, I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I, I, <laughs> I get really excited that I get to do this. Um, I say this all the time. It's like, I'm like a broken record at this point. But no, I mean, it's like you said off camera. I mean, we share the love of sharing people's stories and getting mm-hmm. to know people. And um, yeah, that's a big part of why I love doing what I do. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that's that's kind of what I want to get into. I mean, I, as I said before, I've got a million questions. For you, <laughs> Most <but>. people do. <laughs> well, let's start there. Like, what kind of why why did you decide to pursue this as a career? Like, what was the initial kind of draw? Well, I, I I mean, I've always been a very passionate person about working with the dying. Um, and working with the bereaved, which sounds weird, but <laughs> that's just, I'm a very empathetic person. Right. Um, you know, I've suffered my own losses. So having been through it, I know what it's like to a point, you know, everybody's grief is different. But um, yeah, I had heard of death doulas probably a decade or so ago. And I just thought, man, that sounds really cool. I'd never do that though. <laughs> right. And I was like, that's just sounds so neat. I wish I could do something like that, but I could never do that. And then, you know, fast forward to COVID, everything shut down. And that's that's the time I feel like we were all kind of reevaluating our lives and what we were doing. And I just remember sitting down thinking, I'm not happy. I've been working in corporate America for my entire adult life. I'm in my mid 40s now. And I just, I'm not happy. I want to do something more meaningful. And I talked to a life coach and we discussed all my passions and what makes, you know, what drives me in this, this doula thing just kept popping up and she was like, then just do it already. So I did. <laughs> Here I am. Wow. I, I, again, millions more questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know. Let's, let's, let's kind of just briefly explore in your own words, what exactly is an end of life doula? Sure. So, um, I can do a million different things. My my broad description is I'm a companion and a guide for the end of life and the dying and their families, their loved ones. So I can do anything from just helping people put their advanced directive paperwork together, like your living will, final will, power of attorney, things like that, up to holding your hand as you're passing away, um, making sure your wishes are met. Like my biggest passion is making sure that anybody who leaves this world doesn't leave thinking they didn't mean anything or their life had no impact or their life was pointless. Like I I hate that. I, that's another reason why I wanted to get into this line of work. I can't bear the thought of somebody dying, think thinking they didn't mean anything. So getting to spend time with people, get to know them and help them discover themselves, like what they meant to the world around them 
and the people around them is, is huge. And then working with the family after their loved one is gone to plan the funeral, if they want, help them process their grief is a big one because especially if it's a, the first big loss they've all experienced, your first one's always, it's, it's scattering. You don't know what to expect. You don't know what's going on. Just to have kind of a light to guide you along that path and say what's normal, what's not, what to expect, what happens is, is huge. Have you ever had an instance where maybe a person doesn't have immediate family or maybe no one around them? And, and so the challenge then to convince them of you know, self-worth and, and that their life meant something, et cetera, was a bigger challenge? Have you been in that position? Um, not that specific one. Um, okay. Pretty much everybody I've worked with so far has had family members around them. Um, okay, I have cool. had one client who is was older and her adult children and and she didn't get along. Um, mm. And it was a matter of, try, and I, I'm not going to force relationships on people. If, if there's no relationship there, I can't make it happen, but I can at least, you know, I, I was able to talk to the children and be like, look, this is it. This is your only mom. And she's going to be gone in a couple months. I'm not going to tell you you have to reconcile, but put aside your crap so that she can have her last, months go the way she wants, you know? And if you can't be there, don't be there. And it, they were there. It, it worked out fine. It worked out just fine. But um, it was a little rough because I had to I had to be the bad guy for a minute. Be like, you need to put aside yourself for a minute. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how do you begin to kind of be the mediator in a situation like that? I realize that there's obviously you can't go into certain details for like privacy yeah. reasons. But like, yes. Just in general, like how did you approach that? What did you do and what steps did you take to kind of facilitate that? Well, and I'll, I mean, I'll say, first of all, that's hard for me. I'm a very conflict adverse person. I hate Same. conflict. <laughs> I do not like it. I don't like being stuck in those situations, yeah. but I like, I know I need to advocate for this person that wants, that hired me, who wants me to be there. You know, I need to ad advocate for them. And, and this is it. Like you get one death. Right. And I, I always tell people, you, you die once, do it the way you do it on your terms. We don't always get that choice. But if we do, if we are lucky enough to have those options available, do it the way you want, you know, and if other people don't like that, that's their problem, not yours. Um, so it's just a matter of start gentle, like, look, here's what mom wants. Here's what you feel. We need to try to find some common ground here. And if, you know, if I can't find common ground, then I, at that point, I just have to say, you have to leave. I'm sorry. Ooh. I can't have imagine it coming to blows and I'm I'm not a fighter, but. You know. Do you ever have to ask someone to leave? No, I haven't yet. Anyway, okay. knock on wood. I hope I don't have to. Um, you also mentioned, well, we mentioned at the beginning of this, that you're also, also a grief coach. So mm -hmm. how does a grief coach differ from an end of life doula? What are the differences? Um, so. With grief coaching, a lot of times I'm working with people who have suffered a loss. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's what it is. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not always working with the dying person. There might not even be a dying person involved. I've I've had a couple clients that are just, they they just want help processing a non-death grief. Because there's non-death griefs. There's, everything's a grief. Any type of loss is a grief. You know, a, a loss of a relationship. I've had mm. a couple of those. Um, breakups are hard, especially if you've been yeah. some, with somebody for a long time where it wasn't amicable, you know, helping people process that when they may not have closure. Um, yeah. So 
I'm not exactly getting my hands dirty with, you know, end of life and dying, but I'm at least helping people process what they've lost. Yeah. And no, I've, I've said this for years that I think relationships are very much like the loss of someone. Cause yes, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's always the sort of thing of what you don't stop loving that person. You just kind of learn to live without them kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know? And, and like yeah. even years later, there's always a small part of you that feels. Oh, it. Absolutely. And, absolutely same same is true of death like like i I remember Mm -hmm. i was with family recently and i I saw some old photos of someone some some people who'd passed and in particular was one person who they passed maybe eight or nine years ago give or take and it was just very somber seeing the photos of wow damn i remember Mm -hmm. when that was taken i remember yeah it's just like it's mad it's mad to think Mm -hmm. just people just gone yeah crazy it's hard. It is. And that I tell, it sucks, but grief never goes away. Like you don't mm. get over grief. It's not something you get over. It's not a cold. You just learn to live with it. It sounds morbid and it's not like, oh, I guess I just have to feel like crap the rest of my life, but it, it shapes who you are as a person. Like um, I lost my brother suddenly in 2015 wow. and he Sorry. was, he was only 40 years. Thank you. He was only 40 years old. And I mean, I'm never going to not grieve his loss ever but it doesn't hurt as bad as it did day one because, you know, I've learned to live with it and it's, it's changed who I am. It's one of the reasons I'm, I'm here because I've, I've experienced grief and loss so I can help other people, you know, well, understand what, it a little better. What's your personal approach to grief? Like how do you, how did you sort of approach that situation? Well, <laughs> don't do as I say, not as I do. My first approach <laughs> is usually to ignore it. Uh, which <laughs> is like, Don't do that. Don't do that. I know. I know. Um, now, at least uh, that's, that's how I used to approach grief. You know, I would just be like, just, I'm just not going to think about it. I'm going to keep busy. I'm going to keep my head down and eventually I'll feel better. And that's like the worst approach to it. <laughs> um, no, actually with, with him, it was, it was helpful to me that, you know, I, I have, my parents are still alive. He has two children and we could all kind of grieve together. You know, mm-hmm. he was somebody that was in all of our lives. So we can all talk about him and we can tell stories and joke about him. But having, you know, other people around that have also suffered the same loss to commiserate with is huge. It's not always possible, especially if it's the end of a relationship, you know, or the loss of a pet, things like that. You might not have another person that lost that thing as well. But talking about it is huge. And I'm an open book. I will tell people exactly how I'm feeling most of the time. <laughs> so it's good, good. Just talking it out. I will. I will say though, like I, I kind of approach it the same way you do. But for me, there's something in like I always turn to work. Things are going well, work. Things are not going well, work. That's always my mm-hmm. been my approach. And I know that's not always sensible, but. Sure. Some, something about like the structure of it like you keep going and like mm-hmm. I know eventually I will process whatever that thing is it will just yeah. come one day in a quiet moment whatever and I'll, I'll make peace with it but sure for me well, and I, I always tell people so like if you need a day to mm. like lay on your butt and just watch tv and not deal with it or scroll through tiktok videos for four hours at a time if you need that day do it you know just don't avoid your grief forever because it'll, it'll come back whether you want it to or not. 
You mentioned earlier that you worked in corporate, and I'd love to ask some questions about that in general. Okay. I've tons, but <laughs> bringing it to, <laughs> I can hear the tone already. Oh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> um, related to what we're talking about, I wonder, did you ever have any instances or notice any instances or maybe even experienced anything in relation to grief where maybe a company wasn't so sympathetic to something and maybe it shaped your work that you do now or just in general your kind of perspective on these things yeah i mean i see that a lot um i've seen it handled well and i've seen it handled poorly um back in 2013 a guy i worked with in my department two desks away from me was on vacation with his family had a massive heart attack and died instantly wow he was yeah he was very he had an undiagnosed heart condition you know, they didn't know about it until he was gone. And um, he was very young. He wasn't even 40. And yeah, yeah. And it shook everybody. And I will say the office handled it very well. They they talked to people privately. They left a conference room open. They're like, if you need to sit in here, if you want to cry, whatever, if you want to go home, go home, take a day or two. They were just letting people take a couple of days off, you know, no no worries about that. Just do what you need to do. They had a counselor come in to talk with our department and they offered the counselor to anybody outside of our department that might want to process this loss um, because he was he was one of those people that everybody loved. He was so wonderful. So it was it, it hit everybody pretty hard. Um, but I've also seen, you know, somebody lose their husband and they're like, OK, well, here's your three days of bereavement. Then you got to come back to work. Yeah. What the hell? Three days? I know. I, Are I, you kidding me? Oh, I get so angry when I when I have to talk about this. But that's that's the standard is you get three days bereavement and you can take all the time you want, but you have to use your vacation time. That is the biggest injustice ever. I've, it's the same in the UK. Like, I, I mean, I, I don't, can't speak for every company, but I've seen this mm -hmm. a lot. It's like, what do you mean you have to use holiday? Yeah. This isn't a holiday. This is this, like Yeah, this is worst. not a vacation for me. Yeah. I just lost somebody. Thanks. Yeah, I've, I've like been that. there as well. I remember one time uh, I told the story before, but there was a, a company very briefly that I worked for and it wasn't the company's fault, it was the person, but it was a small internship and I got it for a family friend and uh, my great grandma had died and I went away to to their funeral. I had to start this internship late and I was at uni at the time. And this person was so unsympathetic. They were like, you know, oh, Christian, you have to understand that it's not professional. You know, you can't just miss work. Like, first of all, I've worked a job before, so don't treat me like a baby. Secondly, <laughs> someone just died. Like, I remember saying that in the, like, I, I was in this meeting room and I was trying to be professional because I do take that seriously. But I was like, I was like, my great grandma just died. Like, what do you mean? Like, I already Dude, told you ahead of time that, like, I yeah. I need a, a bit of time. Like, you know, and I still was, I knew mentally, like, it's not like it was like my mom or something or a dad or something passing away. Like it, but it was, you know, it was still sad. It was still, you know, mm -hmm. it's not great. And I, I had good memories of this person as well. And it was, you know, and just the most unsympathetic person ever. Yeah. And I was like, wow, mm -hmm. like, this is brutal. Yeah. That's and that's such an issue I have with and mm. it's not just in America. I know it's all over the, uh, you know, sure. a lot of countries where there's a corporate environment of this whole like, well, work has to get done. Like, I'm sorry you're hurting, but work. It's does it, though. Is anybody going to die because I didn't, you know, upload the newest driver for the printers? Like, really? 
things like yeah, that. It's, it's like, just come on. I like I. I was gonna say I get it. I don't get it. I don't get it at all. I, you know what I mean. And especially I've seen so many companies as well where you get replaced like that. Oh, like absolutely. you're just you're just a number. You're just a you don't, mm-hmm. you don't matter to that company. And no, in instances everybody's like replaceable. That, yeah, that's what I mean. Like if they're gonna treat you that way, just quit, man. Quit that job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's awful. I can't. Um, say, and I and like you said, not every company is like that. I won't speak sure. to every company. I've I know of plenty of other places that mm-hmm. are lovely places to work where they take very good care of their employees. It's just unfortunately not the norm. Yeah. There's no idea yeah. what you can really say on that, is there? It's, it, no. it all comes down no. to the company because I've seen some no. good companies. I've seen, there was one company I worked at where a guy's father, I think, had passed away or something and they gave him like a lot of time off um, mm-hmm. and he came back and it was business as usual. You know, we, we picked mm-hmm. up the reins. It was a bit harder um, without a member of staff, but we made it work. And no one complained because it was like, dude, like this guy's dad just died. Like, come on. Yeah. I remember reading an, this is an article. Who knows when it, when it was, but there was like a, a company that was like all happy and proud of themselves. A, a guy had lost his son tragically. And he, they were like, you know, he only got three days bereavement and everybody pulled together and donated their days off. So he could take like a month off. I'm like, that's nice, but you shouldn't have to do that. The fact that other people yeah. to donate time off, why didn't the company just say, take a month off, dude, you lost like, I think I, I think I saw the same case. I remember seeing that like maybe on like LinkedIn or something and they were getting destroyed in the comments section. Yep. Like, cause it's just like, would you like I, th- that to me right there shows you, so it's the problem with a lot of corporate America and, and yeah. co- companies in general where they're just tone deaf. They're like, Oh, yeah. Oh no. Oh, this makes us look really bad. And often in those instances, they have to change their policy. They're like, Oh, now we're given two weeks bereavement. And it's like, like, yeah, you should have done that in the first place. You think? <laughs> yeah. Let's get back to grief. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you state that your content is about destigmatizing grief. What yes. are the stigmas concerning grief? Well, that's, there's a big one we just we just mentioned is you you know you better be over it in three days. Um, you can't you can't get over your grief. Um, but we're overall, we're just, we're not talking about it. And there, as I mentioned before, there's so many other griefs outside of just death loss. There's loss of a job, loss of a pet, loss of a relationship. And there's a term called disenfranchised grief. And those are quote, not socially recognized griefs. Like again, Mm. the loss of a relationship, a big one people put in that category is LGBTQ plus relationships. Okay. they don't want to recognize those as real, you know, quote unquote, real relationships. And when, when a relationship ends there, it's, it's, I'm sorry, I live in America. Whoa, whoa, um, whoa, 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 back up a second. <laughs> Would you mean, well, like companies don't. Oh, oh, the, oh my gosh. Yeah. A lot. That's not the norm. A lot of times you will not get bereavement for a same sex relationship. Uh-uh. Whoa, that's mad. Are you for real? I'm, I am for real. I don't know why I'm surprised. Sorry, that just that's mad. I can't believe that. Yeah. yeah. Fucking hell. Uh, I'm not, and again, I won't speak for every company. I'm sure there are plenty of companies yeah. that will do that. And if you're legally married, now that you know those that um, same-sex marriage is legal in the United States, thank God. Um, that's at least it's still a spouse that passed away. But if it's like a long-term relationship and you weren't married, I mean, even like 
you know, heterosexual relationships. If I just, if my husband and I weren't married, but we've been together 20 years and he died, that's considered a boyfriend. And that's not really in the realms of bereavement. I've never, this is all news to me. I've never <laughs> heard this before. Like this blows my mind. That's I know. Yeah, tell me about it. Yeah. It blows my mind too. And I have to, you know, live in this. <laughs> it's going to say like a, a lot of times, sometimes from an outsider's perspective, looking in, I'm like, you know, it, everyone just seems so angry in America about things. And there, there are, don't get me wrong, so many reasons to be legitimately and angry. But mm-hmm. when I hear stuff I'm like here that. And I, I accept it all. <laughs> it's just crazy, isn't it? Like, you, yeah. and you think about like, these are yeah. little, th- like, these are little things that you can just tweak and just change and make so mm-hmm. many people happy. And it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it doesn't affect no. you, you, but it affects so many people. Do you know what I mean? Like when, when, yeah. when one person or a government or whatever makes this decision and then it, mm-hmm. it affects so many people's lives and you're like, what, why is this a thing? I don't understand yeah. this. I, I don't, I don't either. And like I said, I'm living in the middle of it and I don't understand it. Like how? Mad. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, I just caught me by That's surprise. Okay. I can't I can't believe that. That's okay. Yeah. Um, so there's just there's a lot of stigma around grief. It's 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 a little bit like mental illness. You know, there's a lot of stigma around that as well. Like, ooh, that person's got mental illness. We can't I've not talk about this. it. Yeah. Um, I don't feel like in, in many companies you can ever talk about this. You know I mean, like I, it would be just used against you. Yeah. Yeah. I hate that. I really hate that. Um, yeah, so there's just, and grief too, a lot of times people are, are, I don't want to say scared of it, but it's like, oh, that person just lost their husband. What do I do? How do I, like, don't be scared. Death isn't contagious. That's the, oh, yeah, that's, if we're talking that, then some people are just, just assholes really, aren't they? But, um, I can understand from the perspective of like, if you're an employer or a boss or whatever, and you don't know how to approach that, like no one's expecting you to be a therapist, just be Be a human being. (laughs) Yeah. Just just be a human being. Like, come on. (laughs) Yeah. Just be like, Hey, what do you need right now? Yeah. And like when I lost my brother, my boss was amazing about it. Like it was, it happened over a weekend and I sent her an email. I was like, look, I'm not going to be in probably this whole week. Uh, My brother died. This is what happened. This is what I'm doing. And she was like, you take all the time you need. I will. I, cause I emailed her. I was like, I've got these three meetings set up. Can you, you know, call these people on my behalf and just let them know I can't. Cause I was too emotional to make phone calls at that point. I was like, can you please, she was like, I'll handle everything. I have access to your calendar. I've got this. Don't worry about it. Take all the time you need. So hats off to her. She was amazing. It's good to hear, man. It's, it's not, and it's nice as well. Like not all companies yeah. are like that. And I worked at some good companies too, where they, they mm-hmm. genuinely handle these things in a, in a really good way. Yeah. Like, uh, ah, yeah. ah. Just be a human being. That's You don't need to <laughs> solve the world's problems. Just have a little sympathy or empathy for somebody, for the love of God. On your podcast, Good Grief, great mm-hmm. name. Thank you. You've, you've um, covered a variety of topics. And in one particular mm-hmm. episode, you covered how to talk to children about grief. Now, yes. please talk us through some of the key strategies and techniques that you've discovered for discussing grief with children. Absolutely. That's a big one because so many people are afraid to talk to their kids about grief or death, death in general, um, because it's it's hard. It's, it's not always easy for us to fully grasp as adults. Right. And so trying to explain it to a kid, first and foremost, if you're talking to children about death or grief, um, be honest, don't flower things too much. I mean, 
yes, their brains are formed differently. They're not fully developed yet, but they they understand a lot more than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. And if you leave too much out, they will make up their own conclusions. So be honest and tell, give them the information you have. You don't have to explain in vivid detail what happened to Aunt Margaret when she died. <laughs> um, but don't use flowery language like, well, she just went to sleep. Never say things like that because then the kid's going to be scared to go to sleep at night. You know, they're going to think sleep means never coming back or never waking up. You know, don't use euphemisms. They've just be be blunt, be honest. You're, you know, Aunt Susan's dead. She is no longer alive. Much like, you know, the flowers outside die in the wintertime. That's what happened with her. She's not going to be here anymore. We can remember her. We can love her. We can talk about her, but she's not going to be here anymore. Be and let them be part of the funeral. So many people are scared to bring their kids to a funeral because they don't, they're afraid they're going to traumatize them. They don't have to go up and hug the body, but you know, if if it's an open casket, but bring them. Let them be part of it because again, if you make it a mystery, like what's this funeral thing, mommy and daddy are going to, and they don't know, they're going to make up their own conclusions, and the God knows they're going to have a crazy imagination and get it wrong, and that's going to cause more trauma than just explaining to them what happened. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you also did an episode on suicide prevention. Yes. Please share a little bit about what you discovered in your research and what you discussed on that yeah. show. So I actually volunteered at the suicide hotline here in Columbus for wow. two, two and a half years or so. So I have a, a bit of a training and background in suicide prevention. Um, that's a big one. And that's another one people are very scared of because somebody says something in passing that indicates they might be suicidal and they get scared and they're like, Oh God, I don't want, I don't want anything to do with this, but you, you can't do that. You, you have to engage that person. Um, if you do know somebody who might be suicidal, like talk, talk to them. Don't just be like, Oh gosh, I'm so sorry. Uh, talk to them. Like, well, what's going on? Tell my, my three words you can say to anybody is tell me more. Somebody's like, I, I just can't, I can't live like this. Well, tell me more. What's going on? Why, why do you feel you can't keep going? And let them talk because nine times out of 10, they just want to be heard. Most of the people I spoke with that called the suicide hotline just wanted somebody to hear them because they're alone. Everything just feels so dark and scary and they just feel so isolated and just to have another human being recognize that they exist and that they care is that's enough to not, you know, bring them off the proverbial ledge sometimes. A few questions here. Um, yeah. Is there any particular phone calls that stand out for you for any particular reason? I don't know, maybe you're able to really help someone or that would particularly challenging something like that. There were, there were a lot of very challenging calls. Um, we would get people that ch- I, I tended to work overnight like midnight to 6 a.m. Wow. So okay. a good chunk of the calls I got were people who were drunk, maybe just got in a fight with their significant other or were just having a bad week and got really drunk and that made things worse because alcohol is a depressant. Um, and they were just feeling alone. And I had one guy call me while he was driving drunk and I'm like, please, please just pull over. I won't call the cops. I don't know who you are. I don't, I don't know your name, your driver's license. I don't know your license plate numbers. I don't know where you are. Please just pull over. 
you're not going to get in trouble. Please stop driving. And it took me 10 minutes to convince him to just pull over. Um, cause that scares me more than anything, but yeah, I was, I was able to get him at least to calm down. He, he refused to call somebody to come pick him up. So what happened after that? I'll never know. Um, if he continued to drive home or what, but like Uber's a thing, people just call a ride home, <laughs> you know, but a, a lot of calls were very frustrating. You'd get somebody that just refused to want to get help. It's like, well, you've called me. You must, something in you must want help. Something in you knows you're not doing okay right now. So. How did you sort of process that? Because, I mean, you, you mentioned there that you volunteered to do that. And I think whenever someone volunteers their time, I think that says a certain thing about that person and what they're prepared to do and mm -hmm. how they want to help people and such. But, you know, we're talking about something that's very... It's very heavy. You mentioned at the top of this that, you know, you're a very empathetic person and that factors mm -hmm. in, but like, I can't help but think there must've been many days when you, you came back from that and it was a lot to take on. Like, how did mm -hmm. you process that? How did you deal with that? Well, I had at least my first six months when I was working overnights every single week, um, I had an amazing shift partner. There were, there were at least, they, they tried to always have two people, sometimes three, which is never enough, especially for the overnights. We were just calls constantly. But if we had a moment, we could debrief with each other. And that was huge because I could, I could see on his face when he had a really bad call and I'd, you know, try to wrap up what I was doing and be there when he hung up so we could talk to each other. That's huge. Just like, oh my God, this just happened. You know, I just talked this and to encourage each other, did what you, you know, you did the right thing. You handled it well they're okay. That was huge. Um, working overnight, I came home and I was so exhausted. I would just fall asleep <laughs> like immediately. Say, yeah. And sometimes just sleeping it off. I would still wake up and be thinking about some of the people that called. Like I would have calls here or there that I would think about for days on end, you know? Um, but at the end, I have to sit back and say, I, I did my best. I did what I could and they're safe or, you know, they're not but I know I did what I could. There were times when I did volunteer work where um, I volunteered at a charity that helped the, the homeless and people in poor income families. So I saw a lot of different stuff and some of it to this day sort of sticks with me. And part of it was frustration at certain people not looking after the people. Part of it was frustration at society government whatever you know mm -hmm. other things were just like heartbreaking situations that you see mm -hmm. and there was a lot of good that we did as well that we were able to do but it it really kind of grounded me in a way i'll, I'll never forget because there's a lot that you take for granted in life i think and it's oh, very yeah. easy to, to be in that position <laughs> and take things for granted but oh um yeah Sometimes these, I think, especially when you're a very empathetic person, you're very sensitive to things, things mm -hmm. just sit with you. Like, you know, yeah. sometimes I'll see a particular TV show and there'll be a mm -hmm. particularly horrid thing that happens in it and it will just sit with me. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I remember watching something with my dad recently and he shut it off midway. Uh, and I was like, how come you did that? And he was like, well, something we often tend to forget is that like, while we are watching something that's not real, our brain can't necessarily tell the difference. 
like you're able to suspend your disbelief, but mm-hmm. the way you feel about it is maybe the same as how you would feel about it if that thing was really happening. And and so you have to kind of treat it accordingly and give yourself a break. And if it's making you feel that way, stop watching. Yeah. You know, um, equally, I think certain things in life, if you feel like you can't sort of deal with it in that moment, take a step away, come back mm-hmm. to it. It's okay. You know? Yeah. There's no shame in that. And that's what no. I tell people again, like I said earlier, with your grief, if you need a day to just avoid it and watch TV and your jammies and, you know, play games on your phone or something, go for it. If that's going to help you get through today, good, go for it. Couldn't agree more. Um, in your own words, because you've spoken about this before, what is a parasocial relationship? <laughs> parasocial relationships. That one's fun. Yeah. So um, that was, that was a new thing I, I just kind of learned about. It's, and it's been in existence for a very long time. Okay. But uh, the term was coined in the eight, I forget now, caught me off guard. It was in the 1800s was when the first time this, this yeah, came yeah. up. But uh, yeah, it's when you feel like you have a relationship with somebody you don't actually know in person. Um, that was it. Yeah. yeah. I, I always, I always just outside that I always do my research yeah. before a show, but then sometimes I'll have all this stuff and then I'll forget about it. I'll come back to my notes and then I'm reminded of it. Yeah. Again, but mm-hmm. <laughs> go on. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's becoming a like more prevalent with social media and podcasts yeah. like ours and, um, YouTube shows you start following a podcast or a show or something and you feel like you're friends with those people, even though they don't know you, they've never met you. My husband and I watched through, I've watched through twice the Supernatural TV series. It's my favorite (laughs) show. It was 15 seasons, right? So by the end when I'm like, Dean and Sam are my big brothers, but they don't, first of all, they're characters. They're not real. You know, the- What? They're not real? What? what, I know. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry to break that to you. They're not. Dean and Sam Winchester are not real people. They are to me. You've but... just broken so many dreams right now. I hope you realize <laughs> <No>. that. <laughs> then I watched it through a second time with my husband during COVID because he wanted to watch it. He's like, well, I got all time out in the world now. So was he, was he just yeah. like, what is this? <laughs> well, he, he would catch episodes when I was watching through it. And he was like, well, this is interesting. Like, you should oh, watch cool. it, but start from the beginning. And he just didn't have the time until he was laid off. <laughs> But yeah, like at the end of it, and then I won't spoil anything about how the show ends. Um, I really won't. But like, you know, the show's over. It's like, I kind of felt like I lost my friends, my two big brothers, Dean and Sam. (laughs) I could go back and rewatch a third time if I really want to. But but people will form these, you know, relationships with celebrities, TV show stars, musicians. Um, And like I said, this, this has been around forever. There are people that back in prehistoric days that swore they had a relationship with, with gods, you know, and maybe those gods don't know who you are. Um, things like that. Like and when you form a bond with somebody who doesn't know you. I feel like this is a really obvious question, but I have to ask it anyway. Why do you think that people form parasocial relationships, especially with like celebrities or particular, mm-hmm. I don't know, people that they're just interested in? Why do you think that occurs? Well, and this is just my personal opinion. I'm not basing this off research, but if I, if I were to use an example, um, like I said, my brother died in 2015 and obviously that was very devastating to me. My cat died a year and a half ago oh, and I, she was, she was 19 years old. I had her my wow. entire adult life. 
I cried more when my cat died than I did when my brother died. That doesn't mean I love my brother any less or you love my cat more, but she was in my life every single day for mm, almost 20 right. years. And I mean, my brother was in my life longer than that. You know, I knew him the whole, you know, 40 years, whatever, but, um, but he wasn't in my life every single day. And it's, it's like if you were to, if your office were to burn down, it would be, that would be weird, right? You don't have an office to go to anymore. And what's going to happen with your job? <laughs> but if your house burned down, you're right, like, I'm yeah. in this house every single day. I, it's, that's just my own theory is like when you have these, these people that are kind of in your life all the time and in your senses and your vision, your, your hearing, like whatever, they they just become part of your your daily your daily life. Like I listen to a ton of podcasts, and I feel like a lot of these podcast people are like, oh, that's my old buddy, but they don't they don't know who I am. I'm finding this recently as well because people, yeah, I'm I'm a fairly open book, but I keep a lot of stuff private as well. I do like regular live streams and such. I've got like a little community going, and people seem surprised that I'm an introvert at heart. And um, because like who I am on camera is not, it's not a lie. I keep, I try to keep it authentic as much as possible, mm -hmm. but this is like one layer. You know, if I was an onion, it's one layer. It's not the mm -hmm. whole yeah. onion, you know, and it's, I don't know. Um, it's interesting because you show different parts of yourself mm -hmm. to certain people and um, in the previous episode, we spoke a lot about, uh, not previous episode, so I was appearing on someone's show recently. I, forgot, <laughs> I get mixed up. We spoke about acting and roles and part of it is like acting in a way it's it's you know you're assuming a role whatever it is husband father mother daughter um employee employer like it's all roles and stuff and sometimes mm -hmm. like say if you've got a boss and you have to appeal to the human side of them you're essentially asking them to step outside of that and become mm -hmm. them become who they are mm -hmm. and, and then you see a different side to them and it's like a different person and i think mm -hmm. it's the same with this it's like when you sometimes when you meet your heroes maybe you don't want to meet your hero because maybe the real them or the day-to-day -day mm -hmm. them is not the person you'd envisioned um yeah which can be devastating i suppose <laughs> yeah because very it's, much an so. it's like an idea of someone isn't it it's weird. yeah 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 <laughs> Or um, a 15 season show ends and they're not there anymore <laughs> in your living room that's especially hard as well because it represents a, a, a point in time. Like I like to go back and watch uh, How I Met Your Mother. I oh, just I think, love that show. Oh, same, oh same. I've watched it through twice. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to watch it again so soon for like the third or fourth time. <laughs> <laughs> but, I know. I'm like Lily and Marshall are my buddies. Like, no. oh, just, <laughs> the, the, like the writers really pat themselves on the back, man. It's a beautiful show. Mm -hmm. But but the thing that's interesting about it is it started in 2005, it ended in 2013. Mm -hmm. So it's largely kind of a 2000s show or, you know, mm -hmm. like early 2010s. And it's, it encapsulates, encapsulates so much of that time period mm -hmm. that when you watch it out of time now, it's like all of the life lessons are there. It still holds up. It always will. It's kind of timeless in that sense. But there's a lot of stuff that's, you kind of had to be there as far as like mm -hmm. the time of it but yeah. it, and that's what broad draws out the nostalgia and same as like listening to yeah. a song your favorite movie yeah. or whatever. 
Yeah, oh. my my husband and I, when we were early dating, watched through all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, and that was so Angel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'd watch this, but we watched Angel too. And at the end of it, I I made a joke. I was like, oh, I feel like I'm losing my friends. Yeah. But and you know, it's also a nostalgia because like we were dating at that point. Like we were kind mm. of a new new in our relationship, you know. And now we're just no, old no, married. I, <laughs> no, it's cool. That's cool because it's like it's part of you. It's part of yeah, your journey. absolutely. It's, it's part of our our relationship history. Awesome, man. Awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to ask this. I thought it's get a laugh. You mentioned in your emails to me that a midlife crisis brought you to the point where you are now. <laughs> Please tell us more about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I keep calling it my midlife crisis. I'm right. I'm saying that's what it is because. Um, well, like I said, I'd been working in corporate America for pretty much my entire adult life. And I just came to the conclusion, like, I'm not, I'm not happy. And now's the time, you know, like I'm, none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Right. But also it's like, if, if not now, when, like, if I don't do this now, when will I ever do it? I'll never get the courage if I don't just do it. Um, yeah. So I, I guess you could call it a midlife crisis. Other than COVID, was there a particular, maybe even before, where it just clicked and you were like, yeah, I just need to do that. I know, I know you said you were talking to life coaches, and so mm-hmm. there's a few different yeah. things that happened, but was there like a particular moment where you were just like, maybe in the office, and you're like, no way, no way, Jose. <laughs> there's been a lot of those moments, <laughs> a lot of those. Um, but I can remember a couple, like I I was in the IT field, um, and just people getting so upset about the dumbest things and like like, this one page won't print and then they're kicking the machine it's like that machine costs more than your annual salary please don't do that and the the machine is the metaphor for all their life struggles come on i know i know but it's somebody screaming because Oh yeah, (laughs) believe me. I keep saying for fundraiser, we need to take an old machine out and let people hit it with a baseball bat. But like, I would get people to call like they, they're like, I, the new iPhone came out and I want it right now. And it's like, dude, there's like a two week wait period. Just chill the F out, man. Just, but they're, they're like, do you, and then I get the whole, like, do you know who I am mentality with, oh, I mean, nobody's ever said that, but they have that whole, like, well, in my role at this company, it's like, okay, you know what? Shut up. (laughs) I I never said that, but I'm just like, dude, shut up. You're not better than me just because you have a title. Like. I it's crazy, that. isn't it? Like yeah, people live in just... these roles and then like they lose it's... their job or whatever. And suddenly it's like, oh no, yeah, who are you? It's that sense of entitlement that I just don't get. And that is rampant in a lot of corporate environments, not all of them, but in so many, it's just like, okay, you're a VP and yes, you have a stressful job, but don't treat other people like crap because of it. Calm down. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Um, okay. I've tried my very best to kind of structure this show in, cause I like to go in a kind of like flow state kind of thing. Okay. Um, but one thing that I've had recently, um, is the wonderful support of Vilma. Thank you, Vilma. Shout out to you. And, uh, she always sends me awesome, awesome questions. She's very passionate about the show. So thank you so okay. much. Now, um, she sent me a lot of questions and, oh, um, I, I don't always get to like, ask, like, ask all of them, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but she actually sent me some really interesting stuff. So Vilma is from Greece 
And okay. um, well, I'll read what she said. When you told me that you were having an end of life doula on the show, I found it really exciting because I wasn't familiar with the term. And at first I thought it was someone that helps patients with euthanasia or assisted suicide like they do in Switzerland. I also thought the same thing. I was curious. The doula part seemed familiar to me, and I thought that it might be derived from the Greek word doula or doule, which means a woman who serves or maid servant. Fun mm -hmm. fact, my second name is Spyridula, which actually means maid servant of Spyridon, who is actually the patron saint of our island. I hate the name, by the way. Just for <laughs> that that's okay. what she said. I didn't say that. She said that. Okay. <laughs> she looked it up, and yeah, basically it means... Um, a friend in death, someone who serves humanity. And I just thought that was really cool to share. So I thought I'd share that before. Um, but she's, yeah, she sent over some really, really cool questions. And um, I thought I'd run through some of them if you're yeah. okay with that. I'm, I'm open. Let's do it. Is there anything that you cannot do or you're not allowed to do as an end of life doula? Um, I'm not a nurse, so I can't administer medicine. Okay. Yeah. Um, I volunteer at a hospice as well, and I've worked within hospices, and I'm not allowed to move patients. Um, depending on where I'm at, if I'm in a facility like in a nursing home or in, an, in a hospice facility, a lot of times they won't allow me to help feed the patient. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, that's something that technically requires special training if you're within the facility, it's probably a, a liability issue. Um, if I'm in somebody's home and they want me to help them eat, I will help them eat. Um, but yeah, I can't administer medicine. I can't advise on medicine. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse and I'm not a pharmacist. Um, and you mentioned assisted suicide. I don't know if that's a, a question down the road, so I won't spoil too much, but uh, that's not legal, at least not in Ohio. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and even in the places where it is within the United States, uh, it has to be done by, like, I can be there, I can hold your hand, but I can't do anything else. Right. Yeah, that's understandable. Um, you mentioned that like, sometimes being in people's homes and stuff. Did you ever sort of temporarily perhaps live with someone whilst that was going on or something like that? No, no, no. I've, I've been in and out a lot, <laughs> but yeah. I've never, I've never like slept on the couch or anything. Yeah. I suppose, I suppose it, maybe it's inappropriate, maybe not. I don't know. So it's tricky it depends if it's, yeah, it depends on who it is. If it's just a, a random client, I would not, that would be a boundary. I, I personally wouldn't feel comfortable crossing. But if it's like a friend of a friend or a friend, yeah, I would if the need was there. So have you done it with friends before? No. I've like stayed like long-term now. No. But I did. I had one client, her daughter was a friend of mine and she was living like her mom was in her house while she was dying. And she, they called me because they were like, we were overwhelmed. I can't do all this. And they just lost their dad the year prior to cancer. And I came over and I was like, when was the last time you took a nap or a shower? Mm -hmm. And like, that's part of my job too, is to is caregiver respite, like give them a break. I gave, I offered her the key to my house. I'm like, leave. Because her mom was in her house dying. And I'm like, I understand this is your home, but you need to separate yourself right now. Here's the key to my house. If you want to go take a shower, here's where the towels are. If you want to take a nap in my bed, the sheets are clean. I don't care. I play with my cat, watch some Netflix, leave. <laughs> you know, so I, I've offered my home to somebody, but she was also a friend. So I wouldn't do that for any client. <laughs> I get it. I get it. What kind of training does one need to go through in order to 
to become a end of life doula? So the training I did was through ENELDA, which is the International End of Life Doula Association. Um, and they're here in the United States, but they train people all over the world. Um, I was in a training class of like 80 people, I think it was virtual. And there were, I mean, people in India, Scotland, I think there's a lady in Australia. Um, so yeah, they train all over the world. Um, they can do it virtually or in, they are back to doing in-person training too. Um, there are the University of Vermont has an online program, I believe. It's like a full college course. So it's, you know, several weeks long. Um, but there are some other companies and organizations out there that will do smaller trainings, but there, there are training programs available. There's no overarching certification program right now. There's no governing board over this. This isn't like being a nurse or a hospice worker. Um, so it's really just faith on these organizations. Now, the one I went through, Anelda, has been in existence since the 80s, I think. I want to say maybe the late night. They've been around for a long time. They know what they're doing. Most of them have backgrounds in hospices and are like the experts in end-of-life work. Um, but yeah, really, there's there's several trainings you can do either online or in person. And that's, I mean, the one I did was eight weeks. I think it was eight weeks. It was two to three nights a week. Um, and then Sunday afternoons for like six hours. So it was, it was a lot of hours. It was a whole lot of training, a lot of research you have to do on your own, a lot of reading, a lot of materials to go through. But yeah, that's that's it. There's no like college course you have to take. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's interesting because it sounds like uh, something that you might need training for. But then I guess it could also be something that I suppose anyone might be able to do it. But at the same time, mm-hmm. you do need some sort of prep. Do you know what I mean? Right. You, you need something like, I think emotionally, that's the, probably the biggest thing you need to right. kind of emotionally be well, ready for it. And I mean, end of life doulas existed before these training programs did. And it was mostly just people that like, I've been, I've been working in hospice. I've, I've most of them have been hospice nurses or um, I've, some of the trainers just had the most amazing backgrounds and some of the best stories, but they're just some, like, I've worked with the dying. I know what to do. And then, you know, it's a matter of putting all their knowledge together as far as what you need to fully service a client. How does one find and hire an end-of-life doula? Um, well, there's most people, the people that found me either just know me and know I do this or Googled end-of-life doula Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> I feel like that's how most people have found anybody. But there is uh, Inelda, the organization I got my training through, they have a directory on their website. Okay, so yeah, you go yeah. in and filter by country, by state, by city. And you can find if if there are trained doulas that have gone through their program in your city, state, country. Yeah, but just Google it. I mean, <laughs> there are a lot of us out there. Most people don't realize they're like, oh, you're the only one around here. I'm like, no, there's like seven in Columbus alone and like a dozen in Ohio. So awesome. Man. Do you ever get emotionally attached to patients? Has that ever happened? I mean, yes, but no. Um, Yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm an empathetic person and I'm obviously doing this line of work because I care. If I didn't care about people, this would be a really stupid profession. (laughs) Um, Not to the point where it's interfered with my work. Um, I, I had a 
the daughter of a client asked me once, she's like, how on God's earth do you do this? Because she's a very empathetic person too. We were talking about that. She's like, I, I don't know how you do this. And I said, well, in the nicest way possible, that's not my mom. I mean, this is hard for you. That's your mom. Is your only, you know, the only mom you have. And, and she's dying. At, I mean, I, she's a lovely human. She's beautiful. And I love everything about her, but it's, that's not my mom. So it's a little easier for me to separate myself because it's, I do become close to my patients. Absolutely. But at the end of the day. How do, well, how do you keep that detachment? How do you keep it? Um, because I imagine this must be a really tricky role in the sense that you have to be very empathetic. You mm -hmm. have to kind of develop some sort of relationship with your clients, but you also have mm -hmm. to keep it professional. So how do mm -hmm. you maintain that? How do you achieve that? Well, I don't sleep on their couch. Hey. <laughs> Bring that back. Um, you guys got to hold me to that now. <laughs> no, I know. I'm, I'm teasing. Fair play, fair play. Um, I, I will spend time with my clients, but I'm not with them day after day after day. A lot of times, like I've, I've had a client, I guess I still have a client that I helped get everything together for them for the last days of their life, but they're, they don't have a diagnosis. There have no real reason for them to be dying in the next few years. So I might not see them again for five to 10 years. Um, if I ever do see them again, I at least got them paperwork together and help them with their, their written plan of what they want at their end of life. Um, but I might not see them again, but I, you know, I, I'm not spending 18 hours a day, seven days a week with, with most of these clients. A lot of times I'm in there at the end, I might be with them every single day for four or five days, depending. Um, but in the beginning, I might only see them once a week for a month or two. And, and then at the end, every day for a week or so. But it's it's a little easier when somebody's not it. Like I was talking about earlier with my cat versus my brother. Obviously, I love them both. I have very strong feelings for both of them. But the cat was in my life every single day. She was a big chunk of my life. My brother was not. How do you go about sort of saying your goodbyes and ceasing kind of ending with a client? Because obviously the mm -hmm. person passes away. You you might be there for that. You might not. H how do you approach that? Like, how do you kind of, do you know what I mean? So, saying like, how do yeah. you kind of end that process? Uh, I mean, I'm always invited to the funeral and funerals, funerals are, are big. Um, it's a good way to, have closure do you go do you go to them or i have for most of them yeah okay mm -hmm. because you know i lost that person too uh maybe not to the degree that you know some of the other folks there did but um there's only one i there was one i couldn't go to because i was uh traveling that week but um yeah I, i'll i'll go to the if i'm invited i will go to the funeral i won't just show up i guess it depends i've never had a I've never had anybody be like, I never want to see you again. I'm sure if I just came to a funeral, they would be fine with that. But um, that's big. Just having that. Um, I take copious notes. I take copious notes. But along with that, I keep a personal journal, which is separate, which is my thoughts and feelings about this client, how my interactions with them have gone, what I learned from it. Um, and just having that, I can sit down and write out my final thoughts and just journaling's always been a big part of my life. I love I love journaling. I've got a stack of filled up notebooks behind me. <laughs> um, yeah. So just 
keeping my notes and writing out my thoughts and feelings. There's a lot of professions similar to yours that exist in society where a person is kind of surrounded by a lot of death and just, just heavy stuff. Like how I know I've asked a little bit earlier, but I just want to kind of get like a definitive answer here. Like how do you deal with so much being surrounded by so much death? Like how do you mentally handle that and process that? So Again, I, I keep a lot of notes and I keep a journal, which helps me just pr- process my thoughts. Um, if I'm if I'm with other doulas or other hospice workers, I can talk to them. We can kind of debrief each other, much like I talked about with working at the suicide hotline. I could talk to my shift partner, just talking about that a little bit. Um, yeah, talking it out with, with myself sometimes. I come home and talk to the cat. <laughs> Yeah, it works. Yeah. I mean, you know. Awesome. Yeah. Are you allowed to keep in contact with the patient's family after the patient has passed away? That's one of those sticky ethical questions. <laughs> well, yes, but no. Um, and it really depends on the situation. Again, if it's like a friend, then obviously I'm going to continue to have contact with them. Um, it's not always appropriate. Yeah. And again, there's that separation because I need, at some point I need to close the book on this. Otherwise I'm going to be carrying all these deaths around with me forever, (laughs) you know, and I can't do that. So I, for me, I need to close that and put it on the shelf, so to speak. Um, So it's just a matter of, I'll I'll work with the, the, I might work with the family if they want me to after the death, just to help them process their grief two or three times. Um, I will, I will personally check on them, even if they don't want me to like do a grief session or have, you know, have a conversation, I'll at least check in on them. I'll send a letter, like a handwritten note, a handwritten card. Like, again, thank you so much for letting me be part of such a intimate space in your family and, you know, any final thoughts I have and I'll mail that off and I'll check in on them maybe one more time, like six months out. And then after that, I just have to stop. And nobody's, nobody's contacted me past that. So yeah, I was going to ask, like, have you had instances where you've had to kind of uh, double back or something like after six months, if it had, I don't know, something had happened down the line or something. I have not had that experience okay. myself. So no. Fair play. Fair enough. Um, has your work changed the way that you perceive death or the way that you view life? Um, yeah, yeah, I would think so. I mean, yes, (laughs) yes. Um, seeing death gives you a new appreciation for life. Um, and that's something I've, I've shared with a lot of people. Like if you, if you've ever lost somebody in your life, suddenly somebody dies unexpectedly, there's a thought of, wow, like, my life could end at any moment and you kind of gain a new respect for that's when people want to like, I'm just going to quit my job and do this thing. Or, you know, I'm going to buy that house. I always wanted to, cause God, I might die tomorrow. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a, it's, I consider it a gift to the, I mean, what makes life so amazing and special is just how short it is, you know, and having just, seen so many and just all the the interactions with the family and the loved ones and hospice workers who just 
stop everything to be with this person is so beautiful. And it's, we talked earlier about all of our gripes and I, there's so much I hate about the world we live in, but mm. seeing moments like that gives me so much more hope and so much more love for the world around me. Cause that exists. Like, yeah, things are crappy. A lot of people hate each other and we only get three days of bereavement if we lose somebody, but there are these moments of just utter beauty and, and love out there that happen every day. I'm only part of a handful of deaths here and there. These are happening like multiple a day. It's amazing. I think the work that you do is absolutely incredible. I just want to say that on the side now. I just think it's Thank you. really, it's, really it's, special. It's an work. honor to me. I get a lot of, how can you do that? Oh my gosh, it must be so awful. But, and I mean, sometimes it can be, but overall it's, it's an honor. And I'm, I feel honored that people would invite me into such a sacred space. I've got an interesting question here. Are you afraid of death? I've been asked that before. Um, yes, but no. Um, I, especially, and this is one of those things, having been around it a bit and experienced my own losses, I've accepted that I, w I am going to die. I know that. I hope everybody can learn to accept that. Um, and I'm like, if, if something happens tomorrow, I'm mentally prepared for that. I don't want it to happen, obviously. And I don't know how I'm going to die. Most of us don't. And that aspect scares me for sure. Yeah. Like, you know, what if I get hit by a bus? Is it going to hurt it's like hell? Wood. Like, am That's I going to lay there? <laughs> I know. Am I going to lay in the street in pain for 20 minutes? Like, yeah, of course that part scares me. I would scare anybody. And none of us know what happens after. So that... I mean, I'll be honest, that scares me a little bit. I don't know what's going to happen when I'm gone. I have my thoughts and my ideas, but. What are your thoughts maybe on the afterlife? What comes after? I mean, personally, I think, I hate saying this. I don't think anything happens. I think we just go to sleep. I mean, can you, can you remember what happened before you were born? Oh yeah, totally. So basically what happens at that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I thought about this too. Um, I mean, I, I, I just can't imagine like our consciousness going to some other. I mean, maybe that does happen. I don't know, but in my brain, I just my my rational side of me just says we we just stop existing. Our energy might go out. I feel I feel like parts of our spirit continue to live on for sure. Uh, there are parts of my brother that I feel like are still with me and will be with me and. You know, I love, I like to hang on to that. <laughs> I'm hoping parts of the good parts of me will continue on when I'm gone. In the conversations that you have with people as they're kind of nearing the end, like what are the most common things that people tend to say to you? And yeah, specifically with things like this, like with their own mortality after mm -hmm. death, et cetera, like uh, what are the com most common things people say? Um, Most people are pretty calm about things, especially if it's been the end of a very long battle with an illness. Um, they're tired and they're, they're ready. Mo almost everybody I've talked to has said, I'm, I'm ready. You know, I'm ready for this to happen. Um, Anyone that a lot of, I have worked with a couple of families that 
contacted me after the person was gone because they died unexpectedly and they didn't know what to do and they didn't know how to process it. And it just, it rattled them to the point that they just needed somebody to kind of hold their hand and say, it's okay. You know, just kind of help them work through their grief and the logistics of like what the heck to do. Um, there's a lot of red tape, <laughs> a lot of paperwork involved with that. Yeah, just <laughs> it's a real. Like, I hate to say it, but it's a real pain in the ass. <laughs> like, it really like, like is. Most things. <laughs> oh my god, the the one thing I will tell anybody that will listen: get your paperwork together now. Yeah. I don't care if you're 22 years old. Write up a damn will and get your, especially healthcare power of attorney. Oh my god, if you are incapacitated and you can't make your own choices. You have, if you don't have somebody to speak for you, then it's just going to be the doctors doing what they think is best. And that might not be what you want. Have you ever had like to help with some like, I don't know, maybe disputes in that area, like where maybe a will wasn't sorted out or something? And how did you Thankfully, help no. Thankfully, no. that has okay. not been an issue for me. I'm, I'm, it may come up eventually someday, but, and I don't, I'm not an attorney. So right, like yeah. final will stuff, I don't, I'm usually just like, mm, you, you guys. You got your paperwork together. Here's, here's an attorney <laughs> that can help you. Bye. Uh, <laughs> that's where things get sticky. You never know how people are going to react when somebody dies. I hate it because that's when people get emotional and bad things can happen, unfortunately. Was there any particular moments that maybe surprised you in the sort of aftermath of someone passing away that you were present for? No. No, nothing has... Now, and I won't get, I won't go into details because I don't want to get too gross but, and plus HIPAA, but um, when somebody is actively dying, it's, it's a little different for everybody, but there are a lot of commonalities and I have seen people just slowly stop breathing and I have seen gasping for breath to the very end. Like I've seen some not so pleasant deaths and- wow. Yeah. (laughs) And that's another part of my job is just preparing family. And like, if you are going to be present when they die, first of all, ask yourself if that's really what you want. And everybody's like, of course, that's what I want. Like, well, understand, especially if it's a spouse or somebody super close to you. Once you witness that, you can't unwitness it. And I can't promise you it might be, it might be beautiful. It might be very peaceful. They might just slowly pass away. They might go out gasping for air at the very end. Gross things happen. I I wouldn't know how to process that myself. Yeah. And I I mean, I'm never like, okay, it's like, okay, well, that's, that's, that's going on right now, but it's up to me to, you know, keep my head about me and be the, be the centering because that's people panic too. It's you watch, if you're watching somebody suffer, it's, Call, do something, do something, do something. It's like, no, this is natural. It's not pretty, but it's natural. You have to just let it happen. Wow. Um, let's move it forward a little bit. What would you advise to someone wishing to become an end of life doula? Um, make sure it's really what you want to do. Um, this isn't the type of work for everybody. And I would recommend if you really are passionate about this, 
like I said, there's tons of training available. Try reading a little bit about it first. You know, there's tons of books out there on the subject matter. Um, find a lot of people have blogs about it. Read as much as you can, really get all the information. Try volunteering at a hospice. There are always hospices that need help, right? There, I've, and I've heard stories about people that want to volunteer at a hospice. They're like, oh, my mom was at this hospice center. It was the most beautiful experience. Everybody's just great. I want to volunteer there. I want to help too. And then they're there and they're like, I can't handle this. This is too hard. So make sure you're up to the task. Um, but I feel like anybody that wants to do this, this kind of work is somebody that can do this line of work. So yeah, hit the training, man. It's, it's, it's amazing. You will meet the coolest people. <laughs> the final questions for you completely unrelated to today. Just, I ask every guest okay. these questions. Oh, okay. What's the best advice you've ever received? Don't take everything too seriously. I was, I was one of the, I was, I was always kind of a goofy kid, but I would take things way too personally and way too seriously all the time. And I had multiple people. It, it didn't click for a while, but just constantly like, stop taking things so seriously. That, that was, that was huge for me. <laughs> and that's advice I give to other people too. Like you can't like, I painted this room bright blue. Like who does stuff like that? I think it's brilliant, but uh, I love it. <laughs> me personally, especially with the green and the blue. I appreciate this. <laughs> They're my favorite colors. So I like neon colors. <laughs> What's the biggest life lesson you've learned so far? If you want to do something, do it. Um, you know, I hate to sound cliche or tooting my own horn about like, you know, I'm leaving corporate America to do this dream of mine, but I've seen more, more than one person in my life die unexpectedly. So none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And that's a cliche you'll hear a thousand times, but I've seen it enough now that I know I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. Um, none of us are. And my God, if you want to do something in your life, as long as it's not hurting another person, <laughs> obviously within reason, but do it. Don't wait. Don't say, well, I don't know, maybe next year, maybe 10 years from now. If it makes sense and it's smart and you're not hurting anybody and you've got nothing to lose, do it. Oh my gosh, life is too short. Again, these are all cliches, but holy crap, they're so true. I couldn't agree more. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for, for being on the show. I really appreciate oh, your time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Thank you. Um, is there any upcoming projects that you'd like to share or some final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, just, I, you mentioned my podcast earlier. Yes. Um, yeah, I would love to have more. I'm just so passionate about talking about grief and letting people know they're not alone. So, um, yeah, if you're in the Columbus, Ohio area, I have a death cafe once a month. Um, yeah. <laughs> You can find that on my website, NikkiTheDeathDoula.com. Death cafes are just an open conversation. People can come in, we gather together and just talk about all things death and dying related in a okay. non-judgmental environment. So it's just a nice place where people can talk about things they might not be comfortable talking about with their coworkers <laughs> or their family members. Yeah. Been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, honestly. And Thank you uh, for having me. Yeah, no, I'd love to have you on the show again. It would be an honor. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, to all the listeners of the Christian Reed podcast, as always, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Be safe, be well, and go out there 
and live your life to the best of your abilities. Amen. Thank you. See you in the next one.